If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings 16 and 17. Before we uh, jump into the Word, let me give a couple of updates from this past week. Um, the song you just heard was actually sung yesterday at a funeral. I'll refer to that in a second. But um, last Sunday, a few of us staff members left. Every year at the end of January, our denomination has its annual meeting. Often it's in Chicago. Uh, this year it was in Denver, and it was 70 degrees the first two days. Just let that sit in for a second. And uh, it, it was an amazing time. We're part of this absolutely fabulous denomination that's reaching out and growing. And uh, Eugene Cho, one of the speakers who just put a book out called Overrated, I would encourage you to get. But he, he was preaching and he said this line that stuck with me that, that I, I just think gets at the heart of who we are, of who we are as a denomination. He said, Jesus is worth bringing people to. Isn't that good? Jesus is worth bringing people to. So transition, I, I was supposed to stay there the whole week, but uh, we had a death in the family of our church. 37-year-old father of two, Aaron Dunnigan, passed away on Tuesday morning, I believe it was. So I shortened my trip up and uh, came home, and uh, probably one of the hardest services that I've, I've ever had to do and be a part of, as you look at a little six-year-old and three-year-old boy who um, won't see their dad. And uh, it was tough, it was beautiful. But the thing that got me was I was getting ready to leave as things were sort of closing up, and one of the family members sort of ran me down. And uh, all choked up, he looked at me and said, uh, Pastor Brad, I've renewed my faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, it reminded me that even at the most tragic times, God's still at work and doing something. And um, that's the life of a church, though, isn't it? It's ups, it's downs, it's joy, it's sorrow. And uh, we also know that as we come together in this room this morning, that we bring all of that in here. And so let me pray over all of that as we jump in the word. God, um, we bring good stories, we bring painful stories, we bring joy, we bring sorrow. And we know that you're the God who enters into all of it. That you, there's nothing that we experience that you did not experience, God. The living God became flesh and dwelled among us. So God, I pray that we would see your beauty and your glory this morning and that it would change us, that it would give us hope, that it would encourage, that it would challenge, it would do the good work that you do. pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. By the way, I'm just, Minnesotans amaze me. I thought we'd have about 10 people in the middle section here, so great to see everybody. We have about a 45-minute message that I am going to slam into about a 10, 15-minute message, so stay with me. We're going to fly. First Kings 16, starting in verse 29, and we're going to read all the way down through this. Ahab, son of Omri, began to rule over Israel in the 38th year of King Asa's reign in Judah. He reigned in Samaria 22 years, and Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's side, even more than any of the kings before him. And as though it were not enough to follow the sinful example of Jeroboam, he married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbal and of the Sidonians. And he began to bow down in worship to Bel. Underline that. That's going to be what we're going to, we're going to come back to and talk about this whole idea of what is idol worship? What does that mean to us? Verse 32. First Ahab built an altar, built a temple and an altar for Bel in Samaria. Then he set up and a share of Paul, he did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the kings of Israel before him. It was during his reign that Hiel, a man from Bethel, rebuilt Jericho. 
When he laid its foundation, it cost him the life of his oldest son, Abiram. And when he completed it and set up its gates, it cost him the life of his youngest son, Sagub. And the reason for that is that different people think for different reasons. There were cults around that when you would start and complete a project like this, you would actually bury a child in there. Some think that might have been the case. So who knows why, but he had two children that passed away. This all happened according to the message from the Lord concerning Jericho, spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Verse 1, chapter 17. Now Elijah, one of the famous characters in the Old Testament, was a prophet who was from Tishba and Gilead, told King Ahab, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go to the east and hide by Kareth Brook, near where it enters the Jordan River. Drink from the brook and eat where the ravens bring you, for I have commanded them to bring you food. So Elijah did as the Lord told him and camped beside Kareth Brook, east of the Jordan. And the raven brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. But after a while, the brook dried up, for there was no rainfall anywhere in the land. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go and live in the village of Zarephath, near the city of Sidon. I have instructed a widow there to feed you. So he went to Zarephath, and as he arrived at the gates of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks, and he asked her, Would you please bring me a little cup of water? But she said, I swear by the Lord your God that I... Don't have a single piece of bread in the house. I only have a handful of flour left in the jar, a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal, and then my son and I will die. Verse 13. But Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just what you've said, but make a little bread for me first. Then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. This, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There will always be enough flour and olive oil left in the containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crop grows. So she did as Elijah said, and she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. And verse 16, listen to this. There was always enough. Another thing, underline that. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. Sometime later, the woman's son became sick. He grew worse and worse and finally died. Then she said to Elijah, oh, man of God, what have you done to me? Have you come here to point out my sins and kill my son? But Elijah replied, give me your son. And he took the child's body from her arms, carried him up the stairs to the room where he's staying, and laid the body in the bed. And Elijah cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, why have you brought tragedy? This is the widow who has opened her home to me, causing her son to die. And he stretched himself out over the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, please let this child's life return. The Lord heard Elijah's prayer and the life of the child returned and he revived. Then Elijah brought, down, brought him down from the upper room and gave him to his mother. Look, he said, your son is alive. Then the woman told Elijah, now I know for sure that you are a man of God and that the Lord truly speaks through you. Aren't there just some of these Old Testament stories that, that you probably have never read or haven't read in a long time are so intriguing. There's a lot of different things that we could look at and do with this story, but I want to go all the way back to chapter 16 in that verse 31, where it says at the end that this king began to worship, to bow down and worship to Baal. I want to talk about the idea of idols, the idea of gods that they bow down and how that applies to us. We know it's one of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. This is probably, here's a picture coming up of what this bell most likely looked like. Probably no one in this room has that sitting on your mantle and you bow down to it each morning, right? 
So the idea of idols, the idea of gods, is something that we don't think about very often. But it's important to understand that they weren't just bowing down to an image. They were bowing down to what the image represented, that in worshiping this God, that they could get what this God promised. And so there were gods of sex, and there were gods of prosperity, and there were gods who would help your crop grow, and you would worship them in the hope that what that idol, what that piece of metal represented, that that God behind it would actually give you what you wanted. And so in the Old Testament, just like we're going to talk for us, idols are very much about the heart. 1 John 5.21 says this in the New Living Translation. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your heart. And literally, the Greek word is eidolon, keep away from idols. New Testament, same thing. Keep away from anything that would take God's place in your life. Tim Keller says this in a talk he gave about idolatry in the postmodern age. He said this. Sin isn't only doing bad things. It is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. That is so good. It's making good things into ultimate things. We begin to worship. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. Isn't that challenging? Whatever we build our life on, it will will own you. He goes on to say, instead of ten, talks about confronting people with sin. Instead of telling them that they are sinning because they're sleeping with their girlfriends or boyfriends, Tim Keller pastors a large Presbyterian church in Manhattan that's mainly 20 and 30-somethings. So instead of telling them they're sinning because they're sleeping with their girlfriends or boyfriends, I tell them they're sinning because they're looking to their careers and romances to save them, to give them everything that they should be looking for in God. This idolatry leads to drivenness, addiction, severe anxiety, obsessiveness, envy of others, and resentment. Friends, idolatry is the major reason, if not the reason, that we find satisfying rest, being truly joy-filled in Christ, elusive. Because of everything else that we begin to and that we do worship. In the first commandment, God makes it clear, you shall have no other gods before me. Romans 1.25, it reveals how we tend to worship idols. It says this, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's what idolatry is. Tim Keller went on to say, he said, every person, personality, community, and thought form will be based on either God himself or some God substitute an idol. Sin at its core is idolatry. Remember that line I said I heard earlier this week? Jesus is worth bringing people to because Jesus alone can satisfy. Jesus alone can satisfy. Probably one of the 10 most influential books on on my life over the last decade is by this guy named Tim Keller. It's called Counterfeit Gods. It's a phenomenal book. And in the book, he has a list of idols that we begin to worship that I want to talk through because they sort of begin to pierce in our heart. And if we are going to be completely satisfied in who Jesus is and what he wants to be in your life, part of that process is naming the places that I go to other than Jesus, the idols I worship. 
So we're going to talk down through them. And I encourage you, write down, note the one or once that you tend to go to other than Jesus Christ. So here's the first page. There'll be a few pages. I'll just talk down through it. And you could start each one by saying this. Life only has meaning or I only have worth if I have power and influence over others. Power idolatry. If I am loved and respected by fill in the blank, whoever it might be. Sometimes for some of us, especially if you're in that, that sort of teenage, middle school place, that can be this friendship worship. That my meaning is based on how many likes I just got on the whatever I put online. Just showed how uncool and old I am there. Next one. If I have this kind of pleasure experience, a particular quality of life. If I'm able to get mastery over my life in the area of blank. It's inter interesting that sometimes those, those of us who think we're in control of everything, we think we're the most spiritual, control becomes the idol. I'm strong enough to do it. I don't need God's help. If people are dependent on me and need me, it's intriguing how many of these are good things that when they become an idol, that's when they become the sinful thing. The gift of helping is a good thing, but when helping others becomes the thing that I worship, and if I can't help others, then I have no meaning, then it's become an idol. It's replaced Jesus in your life. Next one, if someone is there to protect me and keep me safe, dependence, idolatry. If I'm completely free from obligations or responsibilities to take care of somebody, independence, idolatry. For a lot of guys, this is a tough one. If I am highly productive and getting a lot done, that becomes the idol, work idolatry. Here's a tough one. This is one of the ones I marked for me. If I am being recognized for my accomplishments and I'm excelling in my work, it's funny, it just came from being with over a thousand pastors and even in that setting, this can be the idol that a lot of us worship. How big is your church? What are the new things you're doing? How creative are you being? It can become the idol that replaces the gospel in our lives. Next one, I, if I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom and very nice possessions, materialism, idolatry. If I'm adhering to my religion's moral codes and accomplished in its activi activities, it's the Pharisees of the first century. It was about the rule, not the relationship, right? And that can become the idol for a lot of us. I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this. You missed the point. If this one person in my life, if this one person is in my life and happy to be there and or happy with me, that there's that one person that if they can just be there, be happy about you, then you're okay idolatry. If I feel I'm totally independent of organized religion and I'm living by self-made morality, irreligion, idolatry. Just a few more here. If my race and culture is ascendant and recognized superior, racial, cultural idolatry. If a particular social group or professional grouping or others lets me in, inner ring idolatry, right? The right fraternity the right, the right group of friends at my work, at my school, whatever it might be, that can be the thing we worship. If my children and or my parents are happy and happy with me. If Mr. or Mrs. Wright is in love with me. 
no one in this room struggles with that idol, right? If I'm hurting in a problem, only then do I feel worthy of love or able to deal with guilt. It's intriguing how often I see this type of thing come through my office. This idea that I need to suffer and it becomes an idol. If my political or social cause is making progress and ascending an influence or power, ideology, idolatry. Let's talk politics for a little while, right? Kidding. If I have a particular kind of look or body image, culturally, that's an idol that's just tossed in front of us all the time. And here's the thing. This, this, this is the heartbeat of, because this is a journey, right? The, the spiritual, you're not going to figure it all and be perfect tomorrow. This is a journey of becoming more and more like Christ, of the presence of Jesus Christ becoming so true in us that these idols begin to fall more and more to the side. But we know it's an idol because all idols leave us wanting and unsatisfied. All, every idol I just listed, everything that you worship other than Jesus Christ, you know it's an idol because you keep going to it, you keep pursuing it, you keep wanting it, and it will always leave you unsatisfied. And the beauty of the gospel is it satisfies what God has done in Jesus Christ for you, for me, is the only thing that can satisfy who we are. I love that line in chapter 17, verse 16, where, where the, the famine going on all around them, it says, there was always enough. All, almost reminding us that the presence of God in our life, that's the thing that will be enough. It's not some idol that we're going to worship. It's Jesus Christ that God revealed in Jesus that what he has done for us that we could not do for ourselves means that we can be fully satisfied and complete in Jesus Christ. And the challenge is we got to stop trying to save ourselves. Stop pursuing every idol that you grasp and grasp and grasp at, but it never brings the complete meaning that only God can bring. 1 Thessalonians 1, 8, 9. Paul says to this church, now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere, even beyond Macedonia and Achaia, for wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. We don't need to tell them about it, for they keep talking about the wonderful welcome you gave us and how you turned away from idols to serve the living and true The journey of finding out what idols are keeping you away from fully being satisfied in Jesus Christ is often questions. What do I use to comfort myself? Where do I go when things get difficult? What makes me feel most self-worth? Of what am I the most proud of? Ask hard questions so that you can begin to cast off those idols. Even as we go to the table, it's such a beautiful moment to say, I turn from the idols that don't satisfy. And this meal reminds us that the only thing that can truly satisfy is the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the good news, friends. Let's pray. God, we, all of us, in this room, whether we've been in the story or 
renew this whole deal, God. We are so prone to worship things that leave us wanting, unsatisfied, broken, messed up, relationships torn apart, God. Lord, as we come to the table this morning, would you please, God, remind us that you alone are good. You alone satisfy. That inner longing for meaning can only be filled in a relationship with you, through your son, Jesus Christ, through forgiveness and hope and life. Do that good work in each person this morning. Maybe some for the first time. For some of us, God, we just need the daily reminder that one thing satisfies, and it's you. Pray this in your name. Amen. The way we do communion here at Crossview, if you're new here, is uh, after I read our uh, 1 Corinthians passage and we understand what God did for us and why we do this, why we remember this, this meal and what Jesus did, um, you will be in the ne- next couple of songs invited to come forward whenever you want. And there'll be servers, one holding uh, pieces of bread and another person with a cup. And just take a piece of bread and they'll say, this is the body of Christ broken for you and you'll dip it in the cup. And they'll say, this is the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of sins. And it's to remind you that Jesus is the only thing that truly satisfies. You're also welcome. We have started sort of a new tradition the last few months to um, write down a prayer request, a lament, something that you see broken in the world around you, or a praise, and write it down. But then we also encourage you to pray over something on the board as well. Even if you're not going to write something down, just walk up, look at some name, look at some issue going on, look at a praise, and pray over it so that we together are a praying community. Hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. For I see from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. I'm going to ask the servers to come down. If you cannot get out of your seat to be served, uh, we'll have somebody walking around. Please just wave us down. And if you need gluten-free elements, they will be in the back. Friends, these are the gifts of God for you, the people of God.